We're coming. There you are. The Lord gave me a loud voice for times like that. Good to see everybody. It is It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Thank you for a wonderful time of worship and the worship team. That takes a lot of uh, energy, it takes a lot of commitment, it takes a big time commitment to make it happen, and uh, we just get to receive it, get to participate as the body. So thank you very much to everybody, Tom, and everybody that's involved in worship. Thank you to Nick, Shelby, for all the work they put. There's a lot of effort that goes into making this so that you can hear me, so you can hear the different guitars and the different instruments and the voices. So thank you from all of us. Good morning and welcome to Revelation Rock. <clears throat> We've been looking at faith and patience for several weeks now. And everybody just hold in there. We got one more week. I, you know, I was thinking about this this week. I had planned on doing this whole message last week. And then it didn't all work out. There's a chance that I wasn't listening to the Lord when he sort of nudged me to do two weeks. But I was thinking this week, it's kind of ironic and interesting that you all have to wait through another one talking about patience. It's, it's a, made me smile. We've been looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, reads that the tail end of it says that you do not, is, it is the author of Hebrews' desire that we not become sluggish, but that we imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That faith and patience, we've talked in depth about it. We're going to talk about it a little bit more today. We're going to try and move through this fairly quickly because a lot of this is going to be reviewed from last week to set, it, set us up for uh, the finish of this message. But we've talked about how built right into faith is this understood passage of time. It has to be there. there has to, otherwise, it's just sight. There's no faith when, it's, when you've already seen the thing. It's not faith. There's this passage of time from when you pray for something, when you believe for something, to when you see something, there's a passage of that time. You know, how many of you, when you got born again, were immediately translated to heaven? Markley thought he was for a little, but he, then he's like, wait a second, I'm still here. It's still cold, and it's not hunting season yet, so I must not be in paradise. But we're not. We weren't translated. We believe. We put our faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ, and then we wait we don't sit idly by, that's not the idea, that's not the design for the believer to just sit in one spot and do nothing, but there is a built-in passage of time. We believe and then we grow and there's, there's seeds sown in our lives, there's the word of God. How many of you are where you were the day you got born again spiritually? Almost none of us. Unless you got born again today, there's been some growth, there's been some things that you've learned, some things, some new questions you have. Sometimes we feel a bunch of condemnation for having questions, but there's that built-in Passage of time, which requires patience to still be believing a thing after a time has passed. Last week, we began looking at an example of an old, of, in the Old Testament of some sluggish behavior. We looked at the golden calf. Everybody remember? We just kind of started it. We talked through some of the deliverance the Lord had provided. And I guess before we talked about that, we talked about what I uh, laughingly refer to as, the, as IGD. Anybody in here have ever been diagnosed with IGD? It's a new disorder, but it's instant gratification disorder. It's just been qualified as a disorder. It's a very old disorder, actually, but it's just been finally cornered as this instant gratification. We must have it. We must see it. We must have it now. All through Scripture, we see examples of God's people who are seemingly incapable of waiting and holding the line. They get a promise from God, and then in what appears to be moments on our pages, it was days, weeks, months, sometimes in some of their cases it was years, but there was this, what seems to be moments, they receive a promise and the next thing you know they're off not believing. And this continues even into the New Testament. We see this, this instant gratification where we, pr we pray for something, we receive a word for something, we believe something, and then five minutes in, it's like, squirrel, and we're off to something different. This instant gratification disorder plagues nearly everyone from time to time, and it can become a bombshell to our faith when it flares up. It can knock us right off of, we can be walking, holding the line, and then something can drop into our mind about seeing something right away, and it can blow up everything. 
we see this with the Israelites. Now, I talked last week a little bit, and we're going to make it to this. I'm determined to make it to this today. We're going to get to the point where we're talking about how this is, I'm not telling you how to think, but I want to just walk you through some of how I read Scripture and see things in Scripture. Because how many of you know that Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We talked about this a little bit this morning with the Gideons. That was an excellent presentation. Thank you for that. And the the Gideons have carried forth with the very simple truth of the Word of God goes out and it'll do its thing. And that's the absolute truth. That is the absolute truth. And we talked last week about how there's only one interpretation of Scripture, There's a whole bunch of Christians today that want to, I mean, all across, not just in America, all across the spectrum where, well, maybe scripture means this to you, but it means this to me. And I think there's this little bit of confusion because scripture only ever means what it only ever meant, which is hard for us to hear because it's like, but I've been using this for, well, if it's not how it was originally meant, that's not what what it means today. But, and this is, everybody, no one leave or no one throw their chair at me yet, There's many applications. It only has one interpretation, but it can be applied in all sorts of, there is applications that the Holy Spirit reveals and applies into our lives. Now, it doesn't mean we just take a random verse and we make it make make a point, but there are applications. There's things when you understand a story in context that the Holy Spirit can reveal little glimpses of instruction, little little bits of wisdom. Sometimes it reveals our own position or our own characteristics and we see a path to avoid or a path to pursue. So what was the context of this golden calf debacle? Because as I just shared, there's many applications, but you know what gets real dangerous if you just start picking a verse and making it make a point. It's got to be in context. It has to be how the story actually was for it to ever be applied in your life. We can't just pick out a random verse and say, well, this, this must be me. We gotta know who's who the author, who is the audience, what is the context of the story that we're looking at, and when all of that stuff lines up, then the Holy Spirit's free to apply it in our lives. So this, the context of this golden calf debacle, what events led up to this one? As I just shared, it's so often in our practice and our culture to remove context from things, and this guts the ability to be accurately understood and learned from. At this point, at the point of the golden calf, so if any of you weren't here, we're going to give just a brief synopsis that children of Israel in the wilderness, and maybe you've heard of the golden calf, but you're not sure what all was going on. The children of Israel were being led by God in the wilderness, out of the land of Egypt. They're in this, it's called the wilderness of sin, but it's not sin like hamartia, the missed mark, like what we think of the word sin. It's just a region. And they're wandering around and They come to Mount Sinai, and the Lord is meeting with Moses on the mountain. This is before the Ten Commandments are given. And when the the Lord and Moses are up on the mountain, they're up there. We looked at this last week for 40 days and 40 nights, which seems like quite a while. It's like, well, maybe we've lost touch with them. But there was really nothing to signify, Israelites, carry on, move on with your lives. God and Moses are done with you. There was nothing that took place where the Israelites should have seen that chapter closed and now we're on to finding or building, as we see, fashioning their own God. There's no instruction given by God or Moses. And the guy who was left as kind of the interim you would look to really dropped the ball. Aaron was Moses' brother and he was helping lead the children of Israel. In fact, he was the founding priest. You've heard of the Aaronic priesthood. That's who Levi came from. The or Levi was his father, sorry, or his, it was, he was in the line of Levi, but the, Aaron was a priest, so he was supposed to be a leader. He just kind of goes along with public opinion. Public opinion's pretty dangerous. It can lead you into all sorts of weird things. Even though you know who God is, you can end up, the, the will of the people is to fashion a new one. And if you know, this is simple, day one stuff, but how many of you know if you are involved in fashioning God, he's utterly powerless. If we're involved in the fashioning of him, we've made him and there's no power to him. But you might be sitting there today thinking like, well, why would the children of Israel still be, why why would they be believing in God? Why would they be believing he's coming back? Why would they be patiently waiting for him? 
We looked last week in the last several weeks about how when we wait as humans, we have the natural tendency to wander. It's built in. And we looked at a few examples in our natural life that we see that when you see a, a couple, a husband and wife go shopping, one of them is usually wandering. If you're in a, a store that the wife really enjoys, the husband's like, I wonder how many columns are in this building. I wonder when this building was built. There's no interest in what's going on. Now, likewise, when the wife is accompanying the husband to like Lowe's or somewhere, it's, the wife is just gone. There's just no interest. What are we doing here? Why, what are all these things and why is there so many of them? So we see humans, we tend to wander. We just, when we're waiting, we usually wander. We used to do a thing just the last point on this, we used to do, when I was growing up, we would go around on Christmas morning, we'd open our gifts. And I was the baby of the family, so I was, by what should be a legal right, supposed to go first. You start at the youngest, and then you work your way to the oldest. But you know, sometimes my dad, bless his heart, can take no less than 20 minutes to open a gift. He's very, I mean, he enjoys the paper, and he did it, obviously, to amplify the moment where he would, oh, this is nice paper, and who, who wrote on, it's just, and you know, as a kid, there were some years that I was into the next present before my dad was wrapping his up, because we're just not capable of not wandering on our own when we're stuck in the spot of waiting. Anybody relate to that? That's where the Israelites find themselves here. There's 40 days and 40 nights, there's a lot of wandering, maybe some wondering in their heads. And you might be sitting there today thinking, maybe they had every right to wander. Like, what had God done? Well, we talked about that last week. We're not going to re-preach the whole message. I didn't have time for it all last week, so Lord knows I won't have time for it all this week. But at this point, when we pick up this golden calf thing, the Lord had shown himself strong, shown himself faithful to a level that as humans in the natural today, I dare say none of us have experienced in the natural what they had seen. They had seen water turn to blood, and we talked last week. Not, all, not just a little water, not just a river, all the water. It goes so, Moses wrote in Exodus, it goes so much water that was in pitchers. Like if you had one of those pitchers that purifies water, it was blood. All the water had turned to blood. The Lord had sent a plague of frogs. The Lord had sent a plague of biting gnats, lice, and blood-sucking insects. And I don't, I don't, I get from the reading, I don't think it was mosquitoes, but if it was, it was the ones that are up north, like the big ones. All the livestock died, or much of the livestock. We'll see, there's people try and throw rocks at this story and say it wasn't true because, as we see later on, Pharaoh had enough horses to get a few chariots on the ground. I think in the context of this, we got to read, there's a little bit of a story that went into this where all the livestock Almost all the livestock. Obviously, it's a nation. This isn't like the Fulton County's livestock. This is the whole nation. There was still some livestock that survived. But by and large, all the livestock had died. Boils on every living thing that had survived up to this point. Which, you know, at this point, we're part of the way through the plagues. There was a lot of people, a lot of animals had been killed. Hail and lightning. And it said in, in the text, it said that such as Egypt had never seen since its founding. Big hail. Killed everything that was outside. Servants, again, whatever livestock had survived up to that point that was outside was killed by this hail and lightning. The one, the one uh, definition of where it talks about lightning actually paints more of a picture of fireballs rolling across the ground. Not just lightning striking, but lightning striking and sending out fireballs. Would have been a terror to experience. Locusts, swarms of locusts, so you couldn't see the ground, came and devoured every remaining bit of vegetation in the entire land of Egypt. And we looked at this, there's a little glimpse here in uh, Exodus chapter 10, verse 7, we see one of Pharaoh's advisors saying, don't you realize there's nothing left of us? Egypt is destroyed. We talked about that a little bit last week. The plague of darkness, so thick that you could feel it. Couldn't see anything. No sun, no moon, and no stars for three days. No street lights. They didn't have street lights. It was dark. No idea. We talked about this a little bit. If after three days of no sun, moon, or stars, 
you would begin to really not know what time it was. They didn't have their, their iPhones didn't turn on and there was nothing. They didn't know what time it was. They were operating in the days of a sundial, which is great until you haven't a sun. There is they, no concept of what time it is. The plague of darkness. Then in Exodus 11 and 12, we see the Lord instruct the Israelites to basically pillage all the land of Egypt. We talked a little bit in depth about this. I just want to bring everybody up to speak because I know some of you weren't here last week. The Lord instructs the Israelites to go to their Egyptian neighbors following the plague of darkness and get all of the silver and gold. And in the moment, it's kind of like, what are we doing with the silver and gold? And you see when we eventually get through this, there's a purpose for it. He had a tabernacle that he had in mind, and he needed some gold for it. And you know that the Lord isn't in the business of just magically making gold appear. He's got a plan. Egypt's super wealthy. But at this point in the plagues, they may be very wealthy, but they're entirely and utterly hopeless. Because they, there was nothing left of them as a nation. So when the Israelites came to their doors and said, you got any gold and silver? What do they have hope for? There's no hope. Society as they knew it, this is beyond a stock market crash. You know, we think, oh boy, the stock market crash of the 1920s, that was terrible, and it was. This makes that look like child's play. The entire society was utterly gutted and destroyed. They didn't have automobiles. It wasn't like all the animals died and all, so they didn't have any pets. No, the animals were a way of life. That was the way that they farmed. That was the way that they traveled. That was every, the way of life for them. Their health had been trashed. Their very sustenance was gone. The locusts came in. Anything that was left, you know, somebody, you know, some, there was somebody, there was a, uh, what do you call it, a survival, uh, uh, there was a prepper in Egypt, you know, that had a garden that was under a roof that nobody knew about, except the locusts. So even they didn't have hope. There was no hope. And then, in the final blow, the death of all the firstborn in all of Egypt. And you know that the purpose of all of these plagues wasn't just to destroy Egypt. It was to break God's people out of the grasp of Pharaoh. All throughout Scripture, Egypt refers to, it's always out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. The Lord is not in favor of his people being in bondage, any kind of bondage. So when the Lord wants them free, there was, as you see through these plagues we've just flown through, there was no punch that the Lord would pull. It was everything. Let my people go. As the death of the firstborn swept across the land of Egypt, Pharaoh had had enough. He had went toe-to-toe with Almighty God for ten plagues, and he was beaten. So he let the Hebrew people go. Go, get out of here. Get them and their God far from our land. Then we pick up Exodus chapter 13, verses 3 through 10, and this is in the Amplified, Jody. I don't know if you have the Amplified on hand, but this is in the Amplified. I just want to read it, the, the picture. This is Moses' instruction to the children of Israel. So after all this, and we talked last week, the Israelites were just, they were basically witnessing this. They were in the land of Goshen, which we have every reason to believe from the text was untouched by all, it specifically says most of them, it, they, we have reason to believe they were untouched by every plague. So they were sitting there making popcorn, watching this whole thing. They had experienced the deliverance of the Lord. We pick up in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 13. Moses said to the people, remember. And we could just stop there and we'd be all set. This is the instruction Moses gave the children of Israel. Remember, and in the Amplified it says, solemnly observe and commemorate this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage and slavery. For by a strong and powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. Nothing leavened shall be eaten. Verse 4, on this day in the month of Abib, you are about to go onward. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land of abundance, flowing with milk and honey. Once you're there, you shall keep and observe this right or service in this month. Verse six, for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast unto the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days. 
No leavened bread shall be eaten with you, nor shall there be any leaven within the borders of your territory. Verse 8, you shall explain this to your son on that day, saying, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Verse 9, it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand or on your arm, as a reminder on your forehead, so that the instruction of the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong and powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at this time from year to year. Moses gives the children of Israel a strong instruction. He says, remember this. Commemorate this. Build this into your calendar. We understand this in a tiny little bit. In this country, we celebrate the 4th of July, the Declaration of Independence, a day that we decided, our founding fathers decided we should be free. But that's just a tiny little glimpse of what they experienced in that moment. Moses gave them the instruction, you remember this. In fact, we're going to do a whole week that is set aside with strict instruction for the purpose of remembering. You see, remembering, church, that's what gets us through the waiting. It's remembering that helps us to hold the line when we're tempted to wander. When we receive a word from the Lord and then the passage of time begins, the temptation comes to wander. And it comes all, every single time. It comes every single time. And you can wander and it is in remembering that we can hold the line. We remember the faithfulness of God. Moses gave him, and this was a remembrance. This wasn't just a seven days where you had it on your calendar blocked out as I don't have to go to work. Eventually, it's only the banks and the government workers that observe. No, this was, this is remember it to the point where you eat different. That's like a big deal. You bake differently. The ingredients must not be found in your home that represent this time of bondage. So we got to keep moving because we have a lot of ground to cover yet. We're barely, we're barely recapped. So the Israelites leave Egypt. The Lord leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. This is all found in Exodus chapter 13. We get to Exodus 14. As though what had happened up to this point was not enough. As though all of the plagues that the nation of Egypt had experienced at the hand of God because they would not let the Israelites go. As if that wasn't enough, we get to Exodus 14. Exodus 14 opens up. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before, and I'm not going to pronounce it, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal, Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Verse 4, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. I will gain honor over Pharaoh and honor over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 5, now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. The heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? Why have we let Israel go from serving us? You see, it's not just the Israelites who had a short-term memory loss problem. You follow this? It's like, do you look around? Pharaoh, why did you let them go? You have no country left. But in pride and arrogance, why did we let them go? We're mightier than them. They don't even have any warriors. We reduced them to only servants and slaves. Let's go get them back. Now, you may know the story, but we're going to read through a few of the highlights of it. So he made, his, made ready his chariot, took his people with him, took 600 choice chariots. This is where people get, and they're like, so all the animals didn't die. There was at least 600 horses that survived all the plagues. I will give you that. There was at least 600 that survived because, or he had perhaps purchased. There's a thousand scenarios, and I don't want to park there, but if you're a critic you might be reading it and thinking, see, there's still livestock. We don't exactly know the passage of time. Egypt was very wealthy. There's a very good chance that he could have bought horses for his chariots following the plague where all the livestock died. We're not going to live there today, okay? So he took 600 choice chariots, all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one. Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. 
And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, horses and chariots of Pharaoh. His horsemen and his army overtook them, camping by the sea before Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Verse 11, then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Fellas, remember? Remember the Lord's promise? Remember how faithful he was? Remember the plagues? It would appear, based on the last 10 plagues, that the Lord's hand is not weak. That there is no reason for you to be in fear at this point. You literally witnessed a nation be gutted from the inside out for the sake of your freedom. And now you think, well, the Lord must only have power and authority in Egypt. Remember. So we got Pharaoh's got short-term memory loss. He's like, I'm not real sure why we let them go. As he rides by all of the carcasses and all of the mess that was his land. I don't know why we let him go. Let's go get him back. But then we see the children of Israel. They're also, we're, we're wandering and, and so we're having to wait. We're sitting by the Red Sea and we've immediately forgotten God's faithfulness. So they, they approached Moses. Because there were no graves in Egypt, they were planning on dying. At this point, there's no hope. You know, we're, we're a chapter and a half away from the last plague and we're already convinced that God's hand can't deliver them. Is this not the word that we, were, we told you in Egypt? So they're going back. We told you we shouldn't leave. We should have stayed. I got to keep moving, guys. I, I'm sorry, this story, I get into this story, and I love this story. We got to keep moving. So fast forward through 14 a little bit. We see uh, verse 13, Moses says to the people, I want to highlight this a little bit. Do not be afraid. Stand still and you will see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you. You shall hold your peace. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. The children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. We're going to keep reading because this is the best version of it is just to read it. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. I might add that had, had I been writing this, I would have said, then the Egyptians shall know at least for a moment that I am the Lord. I've gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, providing a barrier. The pillar of cloud went before them that was before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and utter darkness. Utter darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. At this point, just put yourself there with the children of Israel. We've panicked, we've been afraid, we've left, we've left the land of Egypt and here we sit and now the Lord provides a barrier behind us. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, verse 21, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into a dry land and the waters were divided. This has got to be like Kansas wind here. It not only did the water form a wall on each side, but it was dry to walk on. Now that is amazing. It wasn't just like you can slop through the mud and make it to the, it was dry land, which made traveling much easier. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and to their left. Verse 23, and the Egyptians pursued them, went after them into the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels, so they drove them with difficulty. 
the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. This is a great revelation, just terrible timing. This is the worst time. Had the Egyptians realized this 12 hours earlier, they may have survived. But they headlong into the bottom of the Red Sea. And at the bottom, at the opportune moment, they realized, I think it's the Lord fighting for these guys. And they're correct. They're absolutely correct. Let us, free, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth. Just like that. When the Egyptians were fleeing into it, so the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh and came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. The waters were a wall to them on the left and on the right. Verse 30, so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31, thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. At that point, we come to a close of Exodus chapter 14. It should be settled. These boys should follow the Lord wherever he calls them. Agreed? This seems fair. This is like low-hanging fruit at this point. There's no, there's no question. There was no there shouldn't have been any doubts in their mind. And, you know, this is later in my notes, but we're going to go to it. I love the fact that in the story of Israel's deliverance, there's no question it was the Lord who brought them up and out. I love the Lord called Moses to lead them. Moses, at the time of, Lord, of the Lord's calling from the burning bush, was a washed-up has-been. He was 80 years old. But when Moses killed the Egyptian at 40 years of age and attempted to lead an uprising, it could have easily looked like Moses was the deliverer. Because he was a military commander of some sort. He was 40. He was in somewhat of his prime. He was, man, he was raring to go at that point. He was willing to start taking Egyptian lives on his own. Let's lead this up and out. Let's roll. But by the time he, God uses Moses, there's no question. He spent 40 years being a shepherd not a warrior. Now, as a shepherd, did he ever need to defend his sheep and his flock? Absolutely. But that wasn't his primary call, was not a warrior. At 80, after a few decades of tending the sheep and goats in the land of Midian, Moses did not have the same persona that he did at 40. He didn't look like a conquering king. He had 40 years of learning how to shepherd a flock and as we see as we continue in the story, this was the quality that the Lord used over and over in Moses' ministry. But when the Lord does a thing, it is unmistakable that it's his doing. When the Lord does a thing, it's unmistakable. No one, is, no one was sitting on the banks of the Red Sea saying, that was a strange weather phenomena we just witnessed. There was no question. It was the Lord who had delivered them. If you continue, and we're not going to look in this depth to everything, in Exodus 15, we see the Lord turn the bitter waters sweet. Exodus 16, we see the Lord provide manna and quail supernaturally to sustain the children of Israel. Exodus 17, we see the Lord provide water from the rock for the Israelites at Mount Horeb. Also in Exodus 17, we see the Lord provide victory over the Amalekites. All of these events were in direct succession, and they all led up to the golden calf incident. See, they, they needed to wait 40 days for Moses to come down. But they, much like us, often suffered from IGD, instant gratification disorder. Their patience waned, their imaginations wandered. As the people grew restless, even their leader, their interim leader lost focus and became complacent and eventually complicit in the golden calf scandal. And this was a scandal. When we hear the word scandal today, we think of a couple where one of them is involved with someone else. 
And the picture couldn't be clearer for this example. See, the Israelites had a God. They didn't need a new one. They certainly didn't need one that they fashioned with their own hands. But after 40 days, it's just, this is just too much waiting. And so they brought forth all their gold, all their silver, and they, man, they made for themselves a golden calf. Ultimately, we talked about this just briefly last week, the Israelites' inability to remember God's faithfulness cost them a lot more than waiting for 40 days. It ends up with 40 extra years of waiting and wandering in the wilderness. There's a whole bunch of stuff we just flew over. We flew through and we flew over, and I encourage you, take time, read the detailed account in Exodus of all of this. We're gonna look at a couple of points. This is what I've been getting to the last couple of weeks. Number one, this is a cautionary tale on keeping our eyes fixed on God's faithfulness no matter what amount of time passes. We can draw from this a need to maintain a clear focus on his faithfulness, reminding ourselves often of the magnitude of this new covenant. The new covenant that we enjoy is so incredible that when we see it accurately, and that's the important word, when we see this covenant that if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a part of today, when you see it accurately, which means as it is, not even as it may appear to you today, but as it truly is, any measure of waiting on anything else becomes flat out irrelevant. We don't really have a great understanding of eternity. Like, as humans, everything has a linear timeline for us. We don't understand limitless. We, we talk about it, and sometimes preachers, we talk about it the most. We talk about eternity. Are you ready for eternity? We don't have a concept of eternity. There's no start to eternity, and there's no end even when we articulate our understanding of, our, of eternity, there's a linear timeline and a beginning and an end to it. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when we've been there for? We don't have a concept of this, and so it does become difficult for us to understand this new covenant. But the new covenant is an eternal one. See, the Israelites, when they were brought up out of the land of Egypt, they had a covenant, and they were headed for the promised land, which is a picture of us today. They were on their way. How many, if you're here today and you're born again, you're on your way, but you ain't there yet. We haven't arrived. Now, we understand at the rock that we are three parts. You have us, you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. Your spirit's done, it's fixed. That part, we kind of understand that. The rest of us is on the way. We're on the path. We're somewhere between Egypt and Canaan. And all along the way, it is important to understand that covenant that we have. Which, see, the covenant that the Israelites had was the same covenant that was given to Abraham. To Abraham. That was their covenant. That was their word that they were going on. They were marching out of Egypt on the word of their great-great-great-great-grandfather. He got a word from God, and that's our land. There was this passage of time. Hard to keep focused, isn't it? This is a cautionary tale. Point number one, when I read through this story, at first glance I see, keep my eyes fixed on God's faithfulness, no matter what amount of time passes. And this is reiterated, and we talked just briefly about this. You see in Galatians chapter one, verse six, Paul marveling. He says, I marvel. He's amazed. He can't understand it. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him, referring to Jesus, who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So quickly, you've wandered so fast. This was in less than a generation. This wasn't like your great, 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 great grandfather received the gospel and now y'all have wandered. This is like you all got born again and now a year, a couple years, a couple months later, you've wandered. You see it reiterated in 2 Timothy, Paul writing, be strong in grace because if we become weak in grace, there's every other thing that comes in to try to become part of our doctrine. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, we see an encouragement to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's the, that's the verse that I had in my head as I began to write this week's teaching. Keeping our eyes fixed. 
fastened to Jesus. No matter what goes on around us, no matter how many 40 days and 40 nights period of time passes, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And I know we've talked about this passage a lot, and I talked, it was a few weeks ago I talked about keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. The picture that I always have is the author and the illustrator. And you know, we, we're reading books, and I talked about this just, I think it was three weeks ago, but I'm going to remind you all. When we're reading books to our kids, we're in that age where we read lots and lots of books. And we always, at the start of it, you say, this book is written by so-and-so and illustrated by so-and-so. And I, that clicked one night when I was reading. It's like, that's Jesus. He's the author, and thank you, Jesus, the illustrator of our faith. He gave us all the pictures. He painted clear images so that we can see him through Scripture. And this leads us into our second point. And this is what I really... We've talked about this for a few years here at The Rock, but I want to encourage us. The, the Bible study application. Everybody sat in Bible studies where you sit around and everybody kind of talks about, well, this verse kind of means this to me, kind of means this to me, kind of means this to me, and you leave thinking, well, that was a fun time. Nobody really understands anything. And you wonder, how do, what are we supposed to do with these stories? I'm not opposed to finding us in it. We just saw encouragement to keep our eyes fixed on God's faithfulness because we look at the whole story. We look at the beginning. We look at the encouragement. We look at the covenant with Abram. And then all the way through, we get to seeing the encouragement to, find, to keep our eyes fixed on God's faithfulness. But you know, we can see the practical understanding of how these plagues and signs and wonders somehow slipped the children of Israel's mind when they were in the desert. But you know, we cannot read and study this story accurately without seeing and identifying the clear correlation to the gospel. If you've got just a couple minutes left, I want to show us. This passage and story in Exodus has only one interpretation. The story of Exodus is the story of Exodus. It's the children of Israel being busted out of Egypt, for sure. But in that story, there's many applications. Glimpses of wisdom, pictures, types, and shadows are all throughout Scripture, revealing the Lord Jesus and his plan of salvation that was coming through him. You see, Egypt was holding the Israelites in bondage, much like sin holds humanity in bondage today. Now, you might be thinking, you might hear that and think of a specific sin holding a person in bondage, and that's fine. But understand, it's not an action that holds a person in bondage. It's a condition. The actions of sin are just that. They're actions. But it is the condition of sin that separates us from the Father. It's a condition that you can't act your way out of. If you could, the Lord would not have sent his son. He wouldn't have needed to. We can't act our way out. Someone had to come and fix the condition. And as you read through the story we just looked at, there's no mistaking. The Israelites were toast on their own. Over and over and over. They were never getting out of Egypt. Once they left, they were never staying out of Egypt. But what do we see? We see when the Lord comes along, when the Lord delivers you, when the Lord delivers Egypt or Israel from Egypt, there's nothing left of them. Egypt is done. Egypt as a nation has never risen to this day, to the level of prominence they were before that. Think about the magnitude of that, church. That was all to paint a picture for us of the coming Messiah. You see, Jesus came, and when Jesus was done with sin and death and hell and the grave, it will never rear its head again. It doesn't mean that we're not gonna experience bump into death here. It doesn't mean that we're not ever gonna act stupid and sin action sin, but the condition was fixed once and for all, and it'll never rear its head again. If you're made right with God, if you are made right with the person of Jesus Christ, the condition of sin is dead permanently. You see, Egypt, Egypt was over. Not only, you understand, its head was cut off. Where was Pharaoh? He was not a commander sitting a thousand yards back watching. He was in the chariot. It says in the text, not one survived. At the end of that day, when the water at the Red Sea returned to sea level, there was nothing left of the nation of Egypt. 
the nation of Israel was on the other side. When the Lord delivers a people, it is unmistakable and it is complete. When the Lord delivers us from our dead state, that dead state is utterly and completely destroyed. And the Lord Jesus was through with it. Tom referenced this a couple weeks ago in Colossians 2.15. We see that the powers of darkness, were, there was a show made of them. And he talked about in his teaching, I'm not going to reiterate the whole thing, but in, in the days that Paul was writing, there was a principle, there was a, there was a practice. When Rome would overtake a nation, they would lop off the, the king's thumbs and his toes. And then they'd strip them naked and make a show of them. To show the people there was never going to be another uprising ever again. How many of you know without your thumbs it's pretty difficult to wield a sword? It makes a lot of things difficult. And without your toes, your big toes, you'll never run again. The king would never run and the king would never fight ever again. That was the principle. That was the picture that Paul wrote about to the Colossians. I made a show of them openly. Jesus made a show of sin, death, hell in the grave openly and completely and it'll never fight again just like it's a picture it's a type it's a shadow that we see drawn out of the story of the Israelites coming up out of Egypt there's so many different things I want to share and I I ask you guys for a few minutes and you've done you've paid attention awesome when the Lord does a thing it is unmistakable that it is his doing It's my prayer that as you have looked through this story, you followed along some of the scripture we've read on the screen, some of it you've referenced in your Bibles in front of you, and some of of it I've just read and referred to. But I pray that you can see as we look at scripture, as we study even the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, we can see Jesus. We can see this new covenant that was up and coming. You see, this was in God's plan all along to deliver us from the condition of sin. This wasn't something that he dreamt up the day before Christmas on Christmas Eve. Hey, we should go to earth. This had been in the works for generations. And we see little examples, little shadows of it. You see, there's, we can't see every detail of the plan of salvation in this story of the Egyptians and the Israelites, but we see a shadow, we see an outline, we see complete deliverance, we see the destruction of the thing that held us in bondage, we see these images of this new covenant. So I invite you and I encourage you as you you spend time in the word of God on your own, whether you're reading in Genesis or Exodus, or whether you're reading in Psalms, whether you're reading in the New Testament, I pray that you will look for that new covenant. Ask the Lord to show you, show me where is Jesus in this? Where's my Messiah, the Savior of the world? Where's he at in this story? And I promise you, he will show you. The gospel that we carry to the world has much opposition. Even a lot of imposters. Often, and maybe you can relate to this, I get the question, yeah, but how do you know that Christianity is the right one? Anybody relate to that? You ever been sharing the gospel with somebody or even just discussing it with your friends, your family, your small group? You say, how do we know that this is the right one? Yeah, we go to the rock and we sing the songs, we know the songs, we read the verses, we do the, but how do you know that it's not Islam? How do you know it's not Buddhism? How do you know it's not any one of all of the world religions? Remember what I said, when the Lord does a thing, it's unmistakable, irreplaceable. Nobody else can, there's a lot of imposters, but it is unmistakable when the Lord does a thing. Because they would say, but the Buddhists really believe what they believe. The Muslims, they really believe what they believe. The atheists, they think they really believe what they believe. The list goes on, but I sincerely believe that it's a very simple answer. In every instance, other than Christianity, every single one, the author and the founder died and stayed dead. Christianity is the only religion on the face of the earth that our Savior died, defeated death, and rose again. It's unmistakable. Thank you, Jesus. It is unmistakable. Thank you, Jesus. He died on the cross. He was buried. He was raised up on the third day. 
When he ascended on high, he sent his spirit to dwell within us. Within us, Death, hell, and the grave are completely and utterly defeated. I hope this has lent some clarity to your time in the word. Again, I'm not, I did not prepare these messages as a, this is exactly how you should do it. I just wanted to open the door, crack the door so you can see. When I prepare, when I study scripture, I look for the gospel. I look for the new covenant, which is why there's so much of the, we always end up there. And I can tell you, as long as I'm preaching here at the Rock, we're always going to end up there. We're always going to be back at the new covenant. We're always going to be preaching the gospel. And I need reminded of it. I think it was Martin Luther that said, I must preach the gospel every day lest I forget it. It's so important. It's easy. When you look around, everything in the world is about merit. It's all about what did you do to earn this? What did you? And you see in here, the Israelites, they didn't really play much of a role in their deliverance. You know what they did do? They just walked. They went and gathered the gold and silver and whatnot, but then they just walked. They walked to the Red Sea and then they stopped. Oh, that's impassable. We'll never make it. Oh, we'll just wait. Well, we'll walk again. We'll get to the other side and we'll wait and we'll worship. And then they wandered and the Lord was faithful when they were faithless. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. If you would, stand with me this morning. I'd like to dismiss us with a declaration. I pray that this has lent some clarity to each of your time in the word. This morning, we declare with the children of Israel that we are blessed and highly favored, that we're blessed going in and blessed going out. We choose today to remember, to remember the goodness of God in every single circumstance, in every situation. We choose to remember and to focus on this great gospel that we are partakers in and representatives of. We know that this earth isn't fixed yet, It's a walk of faith, but we're thankful that we serve a faithful God who changes not. No matter what we face, we declare with the Apostle John that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And because of this reality, we choose this day to walk as bold as a lion and to declare the gospel with courage. Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to partner with the Gideons and the word of God going forth. Father, I thank you for our youth growing up, learning to trust you. We declare healing over the sick that are in this room, that are part of this family today. Any diagnosis uh, that is in the natural, we know that you are greater than that. Father, we just pray a blessing over each person as we go from this place, each family that's represented here, whether this is the first time they've been here, been years since they've been back, or whether they've been here all along. Father, we just pray a blessing over them, a spoken positive over them. The blessing of Abraham we declare over this place and over this family. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful week.